Good morning. Just a quick note, Solomon's Porchman, we will meet today at 4 o'clock. As some of you know, I spend far too much time on my titles. And I, every time I read about Peter and Paul, Mary gets thrown in there, and it takes me back. I was four years old. I one of these those early kind of memories, but I had one of those little record players with forty fives, and one of the forty fives I had was Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> and so I always think fondly of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And so that was the title this week. Except Mary's not involved in this one. We have conflict. We have contrary in this episode. Sometimes brothers have disagreements. Sometimes there's conflict in the family. And that's inevitable due to this unfortunate sin nature that burdens all of us. But if we're being honest, this isn't your normal disagreement, is it? This text particularly rattles us Because this confrontation happens between two apostles. How could such a conflict occur between Paul and Peter after they had reached an agreement to support one another? That agreement happened back in Galatians 2.9 when Peter, John, and James extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. And the agreement pertains specifically to the gospel going to the Gentiles, confirming Paul's apostleship, confirming Paul's gospel. In Paul's mind, he and Peter were on the same page, and their respective missions were clear going forward, i.e., we talked about it last week, Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. But a strange thing happened in the meantime over in Antioch. This episode is so strange in our historical narrative that some early church leaders could not believe that this conflict really occurred as we read it. Clement says it must have been a different Cephas, because this couldn't have happened between two apostles. Tertullian says, well, this was Paul being immature, and he learned from this. Jerome, 4th century, in his commentary explained that Paul and Peter must have staged this conflict in order to illustrate a point to the church. In chapter 1, we heard from Paul himself concerning his background in Judaism, his unlikely conversion, and his even more unlikely ministry over the course of about 15 years. <clears throat> Remember, once again, Paul's claims in Galatians 1.1 and 1.11 that he was an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that the gospel which was preached by me, Paul, is not according to man. His testimony bore this out that he didn't even interact with an apostle for three years following his conversion on the Damascus Road. And even then, after those three years, he only spent two weeks in Jerusalem. It would be over ten years until he encountered the apostles again in Acts 11.30. Paul also, early we read last week, doubled down in verse 20 when he said, Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Paul is telling the truth in the face of lies that are being leveled against him in Galatia. We ended last week knowing several important facts that pertain to this next episode. Number one, Paul's gospel had been affirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem, and they had extended him the right hand of fellowship. Number two, on that particular visit, Paul had brought along Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile convert, 
Paul fought for a correct view of the gospel. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And number three, Peter and Paul preached the same gospel, even though their primary audience was different. So, fast forward. Imagine how disappointed Paul was, how saddened and probably even angry Paul was when in Antioch he finds Peter, one of the apostles who affirmed Paul's correct view of the gospel, engaged in behavior that Peter should have known was wrong. There is a lesson for all of us here. Not even Peter, the great apostle of the church. And in fact, even though we call him kind of the chief apostle, we have more records of his failures than probably any other. He was not immune to cultural pressures. He was not immune to the human desire to cling to tradition, to cling to our comfort zones. It's a pull we all feel in our flesh whether it be traditions or entertainment or politics. We are sinners perpetually pulled between Christ and the culture. That's what we fight on a daily basis. And we would all say, if we were pinned down, that Christ is better. But if we're being honest, that's often easier said than lived. Paul recognized Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew that he had been appointed an apostle before he was. He knew that Peter was one of the pillars of the church to whom God had entrusted the gospel to the Jews. Paul neither denied nor forgot these things. Nevertheless, this did not stop him from confronting and opposing Peter. So Paul does the challenging but necessary task that elders in the church often must do. He confronts sin. And it is all the more necessary because it is Peter committing the transgression. But it's also all the more difficult because it's Peter committing the transgression. Let me read our text and then we'll have a word of prayer. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, bless our time in your word this morning. Be glorified by it. Help us to see ourselves within the pages of Scripture. Help us to apply the truth that you can only give us from your perfect word. Bless the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. Be magnified. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Remember where this is taking place. We first encountered Antioch in Acts chapter 11, the first place where believers were called what? Christians. Antioch was one of the major cities of the former Seleucid Empire. I would love to go off on a lesson about the Seleucid Empire, but I won't put that on you this morning. It was thoroughly Hellenized. In other words, it was very Greek. It adopted all aspects of Greek culture and language. It was located there, you can see on the map, on the Orontes River, 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. 
One commentator said, in Christian history, apart from Jerusalem, no other city of the Roman Empire played as large a part in the early life and fortunes of the church as Antioch. At this time, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and Alexandria. Its population was estimated to be between 500,000 and 800,000 people. This is a major metropolitan area. It was a port city. It had access to the Mediterranean. That made it a, a, a prosperous commercial hub. Religiously, Antioch was a melting pot. Five miles from the city was a major cult center for the Greek goddess Daphne and Apollo. At the same time, Antioch boasted a significant Jewish population, estimated to be 25,000 to 50,000 at this time. It seems that they were afforded some right to practice their religion. So right down the road from the pagan temple was the synagogue. Since those days, as we saw in Acts, Antioch became the home base for the first major expansion of Christianity outside of this area. It was the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. It was the primary church in question at the Jerusalem Council that we looked at before we began Galatians. So let's get to our text. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So Paul presents this event as sort of the linchpin of his historical narrative to show his concern for the gospel and to reiterate his legitimacy as an apostle. First question, what is Peter doing in Antioch? We've seen Peter in Jerusalem. He left after that persecution in chapter 12. What's he doing in Antioch? Well, we don't know that for sure, but my theory is that following his arrest and that miraculous escape, you'll remember the angel who freed him from that jail, Peter left to minister abroad. And I think he eventually made it up to Asia, north of where Paul was in Galatia. So if he returned from there to Jerusalem... After Herod Agrippa died, he would have been able to travel back to the city. Guess what city he would have passed through every trip? It would have been Antioch. And, of course, he probably stayed there on the road with brothers and sisters in Christ. It was an established church. It was a healthy church. After all, he probably had friends there. When does this event take place? I think it's the fall of A.D. 49, shortly after Paul's first missionary journey, shortly before the Jerusalem Council. We're putting this in line. Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch. Peter is there or arrives there shortly after, and this is when this happens. Soon after that, probably within weeks, they go to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council later that same year. That's Acts chapter 15. And I'm, I'm adamant about that placement because if you read commentaries, there will be many differences on the timeline. But it simply doesn't make sense to me that a few weeks after the Jerusalem Council, in which Peter testifies to the truth of the gospel, and in doing so, sticks his neck out. And for the sake of the gospel, going to the Gentiles as Gentiles would now be blatantly violating those statements in the very same church to which the letter was written from the Jerusalem Council. just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Instead, I see this event as the eye-opening moment for Peter. The realization of his long-held prejudices, some of which he doesn't even consciously execute, despite the fact that a decade earlier he had witnessed the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Following this event, Peter took the stand in Jerusalem, surrounded by his Jewish brethren, 
many of them pharisaical and looking down their nose at him, and effectively repented of his sin by affirming that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. The fact that Peter responded to Paul's rebuke and repented of his sin once again shows that Peter not only respected Paul, but he respected him as one who had authority to preach the gospel. By the way, it also deals sort of a fatal blow to the Catholic view that Peter was the first pope. Peter would probably laugh heartily at the thought that he was an infallible man. So, what are we talking about? What's the issue? It's what we might call table fellowship. I'm not moving. (laughs) If you could advance to that next slide, that'd be great. There we go. That is a painting uh, from 30 uh, B.C. of table fellowship. It's portrayed there as a triclinium, which is the table that Jesus and the disciples would have sat around for the Last Supper. But what's the big deal about table fellowship? You want to talk about something we don't really deal with. (laughs) We don't really say, well, I can't have lunch with that guy because he's of a different ethnicity. If you do say that, repent of your sin immediately. That we 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 don't have this problem of sharing a meal. But remember... Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They did not eat with Gentiles. They didn't use the same utensils. They didn't eat the same food. They didn't sit in the same room. They didn't socialize with Gentiles at all because it was forbidden in the Jewish culture. Now, it wasn't forbidden in the law, but the Pharisees had pushed that level of extremity on it. One commentator tells us how significant sitting down to dinner was in the ancient world. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the bread. The law of Moses has its share of dietary laws, and these were added to copiously by the Pharisees in their interpretation. Remember, this is the world in which most of the Jewish converts to Christ were born and raised in. And so, old habits are hard to break. And it was also only natural that they expect Gentile converts to observe Jewish practices, Jewish traditions. Jesus is Israel's Messiah after all. But Peter had been in Caesarea. Peter had broken that custom by going into Cornelius' house to share the gospel. Peter knew better, and Paul says as much here. When Peter came to Antioch, he found Jewish and Gentile believers eating together at the same table, as it should have been. And he freely joined in this practice. Perhaps these are the love feasts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 and Jude mentions in the 12th verse of his letter. Jesus himself practiced this mixed table fellowship often. And what happened? The Pharisees condemned him for it. Matthew 9, 11, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But by freely associating with tax collectors and sinners, the notorious elements of Jewish society, in the fellowship of a shared meal, Jesus was in effect announcing the coming of the kingdom of God in his person. One people under Christ, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And it's real unity. By this radical act, he was also saying that the basis of one's true standing before God could no longer be measured in terms of obedience to the law. A far greater eternal significance was one's relationship with Christ, the only one who perfectly fulfilled that law. 
And it's no coincidence, I think, that part of the church's wedding with Christ will be table fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The gospel prefigures the day when every tribe and tongue and nation will worship and dine together at the table with our King. Here's the timeline of events. Number one, Peter is sharing fellowship with Gentiles in Antioch. But here's the curveball in that table of events. It's number two, the arrival of certain men from James. Who are these men from James? Well, possibly they're the false brethren of 2-4, but I think it more likely these are the men of Acts 15-1. Do you remember when we talked about this in Acts 15? They are called some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. That's Acts 15.5. They had come from Jerusalem, and they demanded that Gentile converts be circumcised. They're the impetus for this whole problem. They're the impetus for the Jerusalem council. Side note, in addition, there may have been a cultural shift in the Jewish world during this time that set the, the, the parameters for this kind of movement in terms of legalism and tradition. Josephus records the emergence of what he calls a fourth sect of Jewish philosophy. When you read the Gospels, we hear about the Sadducees. We hear about the Pharisees. There's a third group mentioned in there, the Essenes or the Herodians perhaps. But there was a fourth group that arose after Christ's resurrection and ascension. And we might call them ultra-Pharisees, uber-Pharisees, if you will. They were a militant group so militant that two of their leaders actually got executed by the procurator of Judea in A.D. 46, which would have happened right before these events. I think these are the embers that would lead to the Jewish revolt against Rome in A.D. 66. I say all that to say that there were influences pushing Jewish legalism both inside the church and outside of the church, and the pressure in the Jewish world would have been palpable to to commit to doing things the Jewish way. Don't rock the boat. We've done it this way for so long. James writes in Acts 15.24 to this church at Antioch, Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. While their teaching is called out and their approach is condemned, James still refers to them as of our number. These are church members who have come from Jerusalem. Paul says they came from James. Because James is the senior pastor of sorts of the church in Jerusalem. And these are misguided church members. Number three, Peter began to withdraw. He began to hold himself aloof because he feared these men that Paul identifies as the party of circumcision. And when Peter succumbs to their peer pressure, what what happens? It lends credence to their false gospel. When When the apostle joins them, oh, their message is legitimized which at the same time threatens the biblical gospel by adding works to salvation. We don't know what, if anything, they said to him about the matter. Perhaps their very presence was sufficiently intimidating to lead Peter to withdraw from eating with Gentile believers. Interestingly, in the Greek text, the verbs began to withdraw and hold himself aloof are in the imperfect tense. Well, what does that mean? Well, it indicates that Peter's actions happened gradually, little by little. He didn't just stop fellowship. He just started to avoid him a little bit more. He started to withdraw a little bit more. The pressure ramped up and Peter backed down until he finally began to withdraw completely. Then number four, if that weren't bad enough, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. 
even Barnabas. His actions drag others with him, specifically the other Jewish Christians at Antioch. Is this not human nature on display? We not, may not be comfortable committing a sin individually, but once the crowd's doing it, it makes it a lot easier to jump in. And the real surprise is even Barnabas. Don't miss Paul's shock there. Don't miss the hurt feelings that Paul has. He is caught completely off guard. This is Paul's friend. This is his right-hand man from the first missionary journey. The man who had preached the gospel to the Gentiles in Galatia by his side. Barnabas is the one who brought Paul to Antioch in the first place. Barnabas commended Paul to the apostles. If this were an 80s coming-of-age movie, we would see Paul walking into the Antioch high school cafeteria only to see his best friend ignoring him and sitting at the table with the cool kids. Simply put, this is, a, this is a stomach punch to Paul as a man and as a gospel minister. Perhaps this even influences Paul and Barnabas' decision to split ways in Acts 15.39. Paul uses strong words to describe their dissimulation. Hypocrisy. He minces no words. Hypocrisis is the Greek word. It's a word that comes from the theater. It's play acting. It's donning a mask. It's pretending to be something you know you're not. When it's applied to men, it denotes pretense, insincerity, acting in a way in which you know is wrong. According to the text, Peter knew the theological truth. Paul rebukes him because he knowingly acted against convictions that he should have held. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the content of verse 11. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is the message that Paul says to Peter. First, he says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Straightforward is a great word. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's a compound word. It's orthopodeo. What does ortho mean? It means straight. If you go to the orthopedic surgeon, he straightens something out for you. Something that's torn, something that's ripped, something that's broken. He makes that straight. Podeo is the second word. Well, what are you doing if you go to the podiatrist? They are looking at your feet. So quite literally, orthopodeo means straight feet. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to walk a straight course. It means, remember, if you go to the Old Testament, this is a common theme where paths are crooked, but the Lord makes paths straight. Walk the straight path. Paul was even saved on straight street, right? Walks up that street. Be on the straight path, not the crooked path. When the Messiah comes, he will make rough patches straight, smooth, those kinds of things. And so Paul is accusing Peter of being disingenuous. You're walking crookedly, Peter. You know the path. You know it better than any of us, and yet you've chosen to walk a different route. In his letters, Paul had much to say about the importance of a Christian's walk. It represented one's life in Christ, Ephesians 4, Colossians 1 and 2, Romans 13. In Galatians 5.25, he will call believers to walk by the Spirit. And Peter knows better, and that's why Paul has to act. Peter's behavior was sending a dangerous message 
a message that if you pinned him down, Peter would not agree with. That Gentiles must live like Jews in order to be saved. Peter would never publicly subscribe to that, but his passivity is communicating a tacit agreement with heresy. And if you're an apostle being associated with heresy, that's dangerous stuff. But is Paul being contradictory here? Is he he contradicting things that he taught elsewhere? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians nine nineteen. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may do by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. If Paul can write this, then why is it wrong for Peter to do some accommodation with these men in Antioch? Why can't he adapt to preferences and sensitivities of these Jewish men? Could Peter not just say, I'm serving the weaker brother. I became a Jew so I can reach more Jews. I think if we move this into modern times, I think we could kind of think about some of the ridiculousness of this because there are limits to this accommodation, is there not? You wouldn't say, I become drunk so I can reach the drunkard. That wouldn't be a productive way to spread the gospel. Paul makes it clear, this was not accommodation for the sake of the gospel. This was compromise at the expense of the gospel. Those are two very different things. And here is Paul's rebuke. If you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's point is, Peter, you're acting hypocritically. Your actions are negatively affecting the gospel. Peter is a Jew by birth, but he knows well that he's been freed from the condemnation of the law. He learned directly from Christ not to declare anything unclean, that the Lord has declared clean. So he lives functionally as a Gentile, free of the law. When he's in downtown Indy, he never skips a shrimp cocktail at St. Elmo's. He lives like a Gentile. But now, because of social pressures, he puts that yoke back on the Gentiles around him. But he doesn't carry it himself. That cannot be. There are not different classes of Christians. There's only the elect, and those elect are Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, black, white, and brown. Paul's approach is interesting. First off, what does Paul do? Makes a Facebook post ripping Peter to shreds. No. He badmouths him to James back in Jerusalem. No. But it is a public rebuke. Notice, in the presence of all, that's where this rebuke was made. We might say, Paul... What about Matthew 18? Did Paul do the right thing? 
But then we look at Scripture and we go, what are we supposed to do? Because it says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But then Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Do we have a contradiction here? Should the rebuke be private or public? What's the correct approach? Well, I think the Bible teaches that it depends on the issue at hand and the person involved. We must remember that the Antioch incident is not a personality clash. It's not a power play between two leaders. If that were the case, Paul undoubtedly would have gone to Peter privately. He would have executed the Matthew 18 approach. But from the first to the last, this issue is theological. And Paul treats it as a theological issue. John Calvin said this was no human business matter, but involved the purity of the gospel. Two things to consider. Paul may very well have spoken to Peter privately without success, and it's not recorded. Second, even if he didn't, he's in line with 1 Timothy 5.20, which concerns continuing sin in context by an elder, which fits the situation with Peter. Further, and I think the most important point, Peter's sin had impacted the entire church. It had impacted the church already. Augustine said it is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. This is kind of the philosophy of church discipline as well. If the sin is public and it's in full view of the church, then the sin must be dealt with publicly lest the church be accused of tolerating or sanctioning sin. That's a conversation we often have in cases of church discipline. And someone that would criticize church discipline would say, hey, well, we all have sins. How come we're not confronting all these sins like that? Well, we all acknowledge that. But the fact is, some sins are public and some sins are not known. I don't know what you're doing in your house by yourself on a Friday night. I'm not there. No one else is either. I can't bring you in front of the church for a sin I don't know that you're committing. But if you're driving drunk and get a DUI, Month after month after month, that's public record. And it has to be dealt with if you're a member of the church. And even more so, if there is an elder involved. We cannot be seen as sanctioning sin, and Paul knew that. So, Paul addresses it publicly. Not to dunk on Peter, but to warn the church of playing the hypocrite with the gospel. It's not only Peter who needs to repent. Barnabas and the other Jewish transgressors need to come forward as well. A public rebuke in this instance was warranted because Peter's sin committed, was committed in the public square and it had public consequences because others followed his example. Martin Luther said, Peter erred in life and in doctrine. Paul might have dismissed Peter's error as a matter of no consequence, but Paul saw that Peter's error would lead to the damage of the whole church unless it was corrected. Therefore, he withstood Peter to his face. The church, Peter, The apostles, angels from heaven, are not to be heard unless they teach the genuine word of God. So I would argue that Paul is well within his apostolic rights to handle this just as he he did. I guarantee you, he did not enjoy it. Church discipline is not fun. But it was necessary. Why? Because sin never just affects the individual. Here's the illustration. For you airplane nerds in the room, that's a Boeing B-52 Stratofortress. If you've ever seen one up close, it's pretty impressive. 
a flyover. That one of my, my favorite thing when I was at Air Force was flyovers, and the B-52 is an impressive flyover. It was brought into military service in 1955, and this plane was used in bombing runs in North Vietnam. If you go study those great bombing runs, you will read about the B-52. It was still used as recently as the war in Afghanistan. This plane has lasted. I won't get too deep into the specifics, but the amount of bombs that this aircraft dropped in a bombing run would certainly target the enemy. But unfortunately, the inevitability would be there would be collateral damage as well. It didn't mean for that to happen, but that was the inevitability. In other words, damage to people and things other than the primary target would occur. That's how sin works as well. The primary actor is responsible for his own sin. However, that sin rarely stays localized to an individual. It impacts those around us, causes pain to some. It provides motivation to sin for others. In both cases, the collateral damage is deadly serious. That's why Paul has to address this issue directly and definitively. Our sins always have effect on others. Those of us who are parents know that our sins can shape our children. And all of us as Christians live in society with other believers. We are the body of Christ, not merely individual entities. Our sins in private affect others even when we don't see it, even when we don't realize that that could be the case. Why? Because the gospel has made us a family. And when things happen within the family, it spreads throughout the family. Paul talks about this amazing bringing together of God's family in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Of course, Paul also uses that picture of a body. And a broken arm affects the whole body. And a tumor affects the whole body. And so everything that's felt within the body spreads through the body in pain. Anything that threatens to divide that unity under the blood of Christ is unbiblical and antithetical to the gospel. Repentance is the answer, and that's why Paul does what he does. I think we learned some lessons from this text. Number one, leaders aren't perfect. There was every reason for Peter to resist the pressure to compromise his convictions in the face of these cultural forces. He had been in the intimate circle of Jesus' closest disciples. He was a primary witness to the resurrection. He had witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He had even been used by God as the initial instrument of evangelism that broke through to the Gentiles. Yet in a moment of crisis, he failed. And by the force of his example, he led many others astray as well. Paul's warning to the Galatians is clear. What happened to Peter can happen to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Number two, it reinforces the idea of the Jerusalem Council and everything else that there is no Christian class system. Division of any brand within the body of Christ, whether it be racial, social, economic, is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. The grace found at the cross removes these barriers. Any religious system or theology that denies this truth stands in opposition to the new creation that God is bringing into being. The body of Christ, not based on class, 
color, social condition, but on grace alone. What is Paul preaching? Now, if God justifies Jews and Gentiles on the same terms through simple faith in Christ crucified and puts no difference between them, who are we to withhold fellowship from Gentile believers unless they're circumcised? If God does not require this work of the law called circumcision before he accepts them, how dare we impose a condition upon them in which God doesn't impose? If God has accepted them, how can we reject them? If he receives them to his fellowship, shall we deny them ours? He has reconciled them to himself. How can we withdraw from those whom God has reconciled? The principle is well stated in Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We can do the same when we elevate ourselves and our opinions over the gospel. We become 21st century Judaizers and Gnostics, leading others away from Christ and his saving gospel rather than towards it. In this case, Paul stood alone on behalf of the gospel. This is number three. Leadership can be lonely. He's not the first to do so, nor will he be the last. Martin Luther certainly comes to mind as he stood before church authorities in his day. Later, Spurgeon stood alone during the downgrade controversy in England. Perhaps you and I will be afforded the same privilege before it's all said and done. But Christ calls us to stand. We also learn about the reality of sin. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. 1 John 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And Paul in Romans seven fourteen and 15, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, for I am not practicing what I, li- what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So when you struggle with sin, know that even Peter did, even Paul, even James, even John. And it's not, well, we're all sinners, I guess that's what it is. No, we, we join together in our hatred of that sin. We join together in our mortification of that sin. It is comforting to know that there are no other perfect men, (laughs) that I'm not the only one to suffer, but at the same time, it's no excuse not to fight this sin nature that's in us. I hope that humbles you as it does me. I hope it drives you to the truth that apart from Christ, as he told the disciples in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. That our strength to combat sin comes from no place else. None of us can boast except about our weakness and in the cross of Christ. Grace saved us once and for all, but we need grace every day in this journey of sanctification. One commentator said, we cannot live on yesterday's grace. We need fresh grace for each new day. And so we are called upon every day to rely on God's grace in Christ. He will give us what we need. He will supply. There's a reason that he tells us when we pray to give us this day our daily bread. If you're like me, I would like yearly bread. (laughs) Can I make sure we've got this covered for the next six months? No, I want you to trust me every day to give you what you need. That's the provider that he is. In conclusion, I return to these two sinners saved by grace. Sometimes among brothers and sisters in Christ, ministry philosophies change. Sometimes personalities don't mix well within a particular circle. And you know what? That's fine. There's no shame in doing what Paul and Barnabas did 
which is to go their separate ways in ministry. We'll get to that when we get back to the book of Acts. Yet they never compromised the fellowship they had in the gospel. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 9, 6, it seems they would minister together again. Of course, we're talking about Peter and Paul here. But differences in opinion need not break churches and fellowship. It's just sometimes God calls us in another direction. He knows better than we do that sinful human beings in relationship is a really difficult task. We've been talking about it in marriage for some weeks now in Sunday school, haven't we? He wants us to be maximally effective for his glory and his gospel. And by the way, we can even glorify him when we do it differently. That's the situation here. Peter was called to evangelize the Jews and Paul the Gentiles. As we said last week, same gospel, same goal, different mission fields. He could have written off Paul, Peter could have. He could have gone all over Christendom calling Paul a nuisance, a pain in the neck, pushy, stubborn. But it would be Peter that affirms Paul's writings as scripture in his second epistle. The same man who opposed him in Antioch was a brother in Christ, and Peter would write about the inspired author of scripture. Paul would write about Peter in 1 Corinthians as a fellow minister of the gospel and a primary eyewitness of the risen Christ. Paul never calls uh, Peter a false teacher. He never calls him an apostate, and that's significant. Why? Because When men apostatize in churches that Paul was involved with, he never hesitates to call them out, many times by name. He doesn't say that about Peter. This is a disagreement among brothers. This is hashed out among brothers, and ministry goes forward. Peter and Paul are the dynamic duo of the early church, not Batman and Robin, more like Batman and Superman. Like they're going to butt heads sometimes. But when evil rears its ugly head, the Justice League is together and they're going to go fight it. That's what's going to happen. Interestingly, they rarely cross paths until much later. Their contributions to the New Testament are myriad. In addition to his two epistles, I believe it's Peter that confirms and approves Luke's gospel for publication as an eyewitness. He's the authority behind the gospel of Mark. Paul will write 13 letters, I would argue 14, And he will be the primary publisher of New Testament doctrine. These men were faithful servants of the king, and yet their personalities sometimes clashed. Sometimes they argued. Oil and water, some might say. And yet, despite their differences, they were able to preach, teach, and minister where God planted them. And they were obedient to the mission. Why no anti-Paul diatribes from Peter? Why not a discounting of Peter's authority by Paul? Because despite their differences, these men were brothers in Christ and dwelt by the same Spirit. These men possessed the love of Christ, and that love, Peter would testify, covers a multitude of sins. And the grace of God abides. And speaking of grace, next week, Paul will use this historical example to launch into a defense of one of the most beautiful doctrines in Scripture. Justification by faith alone. There was no way I was going to tag on justification to this story. That deserves a full-fledged sermon. If you have been justified in Christ, come ready next week to praise the name of your Savior. I hope you do that anyway, but particularly when we talk about something so amazing. And if you haven't, next Sunday, you can hear the gospel of your salvation. And believe it or not, God uses the foolishness of preaching to bring people to faith. I hope you'll pray that the Lord would draw men and women to himself for his glory and his glory alone.
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are gracious. You are sufficient. You have given us peace. Lord, you've given us boldness. You've given us the ability to persevere through trials. And Lord, I pray you would continue to make us more like your son, that you would drive us to holiness, that you would convict us of sin so we could pursue just that for the glory of your name, for the testimony of you, for the testimony of your church. Lord, help us to be bold when we confront error and help us to be gracious for all that we interact with. Lord, that that our goal would be to win a brother. That our goal would be to show the grace that you've shown us to others. Lord, that's not an easy thing for us to do with this flesh we carry around, but I pray that you would drive us to that, that you would bring us to unity, that you would bring us to a consensus in Christ, that your glory is the most important, that your church is precious, and that your gospel is paramount. We pray these things to your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.